0: certainly good to be here with you folks this morning, and let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter number 11 for the Sunday School Hour. Hebrews chapter number 11, and... Uh, a typical fashion, whether I'm in a you know regular meeting context or Sunday Square, typically uh, I will preach expositionally, verse by verse. Uh, however, this morning it's going to be a bit different. I want to I want us to examine uh, a topic in the Bible, and I want us to use Hebrews chapter number eleven as our springboard. In verse number one, the Bible says this: Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And we know that throughout the latter part of the chapter, it will give us examples of the prophets and patriarchs and preachers of the Old Testament, and how that God's dealing with man and working through man to accomplish his plan and purpose in the world, uh, has been done by faith. And so Hebrews chapter number 11 is a chapter of works, but we understand that the works of God are done by faith. And so I want for us this morning just to think about biblical faith, saving faith, what is faith in a biblical sense. Well, the definition given to us from the Word of God, as we read in verse number 1, tells us that it is the substance of things hoped for. And that it is the evidence of things not seen. And so, from the definition that God gives us in His Word, what we can tell is that there are two components, if you will, to how the Bible defines faith. One of my favorite preachers, he was a, a farmer from Iowa... And he had made this statement, and I've never forgotten it. He said that faith involves two things, the anticipated and the unseen. And so when you think about it, that is what faith is. Faith involves the anticipated and the unseen. The anticipated, the substance of things hoped for. Uh, I anticipate that uh, whenever we uh, end our gathering today, that when I go back out into the parking lot, my car will start. I'm anticipating that. That's something that I'm expecting. Um, though I, I, I'm not mechanically inclined when it comes to automobiles. And uh, I wouldn't know the first thing about how to fix it if it wasn't. But I am anticipating that. Though I cannot say for certain in this moment that I know that everything is functioning the way that it should be on that vehicle. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is something that is anticipated and it is the evidence of things not seen. Having not seen the Lord, we love Him. We believe in Him. We trust Him. And by the Holy Spirit, we have a saving faith that assures us within our hearts that as real as we are one another here this morning... So is the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He is real. He is eternally existent. There has never been a time that he has not existed. And though he is not with us presently as he was with the disciples and during this uh, first century gospel time upon earth, we know that he is there. And so we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I could, I would like to just highlight a few things about faith that I believe that are important uh, distinctives regarding saving faith. And then through the latter part of the lesson, what I would like to do is examine sort of a historical theology uh, of faith and how the church throughout history has taught the concept of faith. Uh, But the first thing that I'd like to mention is that faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter number 2, and verse number 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is entirely a gift from above. And so, There is no boasting in faith. There is no boasting in anything. There is no laying of credit to anything that we have done that sets us apart from anyone else because this is something that has been dispensed from the hand of God by His mercy and by His grace alone. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number 4, I want to read a a portion of scripture here. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 in verses 6 and 7. And here Paul's exhortation says, "...and and all these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that none of you be puffed up for for one against another." Uh, It's important that we get our understanding of the doctrine of man... From the scriptures. And I remember, uh, one of the most edifying things I think that you can find on the internet today are two televised interviews with Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones during the time that he was the pastor at Westminster Chapel in London. And he sat down with an interview, for an interview, um, with a lady, a journalist named Joan Blackwell. And in this interview, he sort of expresses to her. The idea that there is a problem today with the way that man views himself. And he said something interesting that I've not considered before, but he said typically man will either be considered into high estate or into low estate. And he said he's considered into high estate because he takes him far above the creaturely limitations that the Bible clearly teaches us Regarding our creation. And he said, into low estate, in the idea that we're not necessarily made in the image of God, but that we have evolved from primates and other animals and germs and larvae and so forth. And he said, both ideas are so foolish that men really don't have a grasp on what they are. And uh, one of the great themes in John Calvin's theology was that it is so important to understand who God is, and who we are. And I believe that that sets a healthy framework for interpreting and understanding the Bible, particularly when it comes to salvation, if we understand who God is and who we are. And so, Paul's desire here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is that we would not be puffed up, that we would not have uh, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but that we would have a healthy and humble understanding of who we are. In verse number 7, he makes one of the most humbling statements in all of Scripture. He says, "...for who maketh thee to differ from another? What makes you any different? For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive?" What is it that you have that you have not received from the merciful and gracious hand of God? Nothing. And therefore we have nothing to boast in. I've talked to many men in their older age who are very gospel-hardened in pride because they have, and nobly, I must say, worked hard for everything that they have. However, such a man would have to ask himself, how is it that he did this? How is it that He had the strength to do this? How is it that He had the health to do this? How is it that He had the intellectual capability and the mind to do this? These are all things that are from the hand of God. Because in just a moment's time, as the breath in our uh, lungs gets expelled every few moments, God could take our last breath from us and would, we, we would be hopeless and defenseless before the face of a holy God. And so, what, what makes us any different? What is it that that we have that we have not received? And he says, now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? What do you have to glory in other than the grace of God? That God has been merciful to us as sinners. Empty handed. My mind goes to the illustration that the Lord Jesus gave in his gospel preaching when he tells them that unless they receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child they will not enter in I don't believe what the Lord is teaching there is that unless a conversion takes place in adolescent years someone will not be saved Well we know that not to be true but I do believe what he is saying is that unless with a entirely humble dependence we Depend upon God for that grace. In other words, we don't we don't bring with us our accolades and our pedigree and our education or anything that we might try and lay claim to, because all of it is nothing. You think of the language of Paul. Paul used very strong language. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, and he he was a Pharisee. Of the Pharisees. And he said, I count it all as dung. He counted it all as dung. It was nothing, it was waste to him. It was nothing. So, everything that you and I have and everything that we understand about God, we do so by faith, and it is by the grace of God that we have been given this faith. And so, faith is a gift from God. Uh, not only is faith a gift from God, but faith produces a radical change. Faith produces a radical change in someone. And this is uh, a doctrine that, uh, as Brother Paul and Brother Kevin and I and my wife spoke last night about, that has somewhat fallen by the wayside in our day and age. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17... If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. It it really doesn't get any more radical than that. Everything changes. Everything's new. And so, by way of deductive reasoning, you and I can conclude that if nothing has changed then there was no conversion that took place. And people will sneer at that doctrine and people will mock at that doctrine today. But I still believe in a life-changing gospel. And that if someone is not changed, they are not converted. Uh, Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be going a few places, but I you don't have to turn there with me, but you can if you'd like. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. This is what Paul is saying. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to what Paul says in verse number 11. And such were some of you. The congregation of the saints is a congregation of saved sinners. And until you understand that you are a sinner condemned under the law of God and His righteous standard, you cannot come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. You must see that you have a need for your salvation. This is something that is spiritually illumined in the new birth. Well, we see these lists of sins and uh, perhaps several of us, myself included, could read this list and think to ourselves, I'm guilty of most of the things on that list. And that is a fearful thing. Because when we under, we read that, we understand that, he is telling us clearly, do not be deceived about this. Don't. And John tells us in 1 John, don't be deceived about these people they will not inherit the kingdom of God, is, is Paul and it, are John necessarily saying that the people who are have ever had these sins laid to their account will not enter the kingdom of God? What I believe he is teaching more fully is that those who are named among this group whose manner of life reflects these sins, so someone who habitually practices Drunkenness is a drunkard. Someone who habitually practices infidelity is an adulterer. Someone who habitually uh, focuses all their love and time and effort into things that are not God. uh, In a sense almost worships them is an idolater. He says the people whose manner of life, the bend of their life as the Puritans would say... Reflects these truths and these sins. Paul is saying to us, "Do not be deceived. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God." And we know that the uh, the old doctrine of entire sanctification is not one to be found in this present corporal life, is it? But that there will come a day when entire sanctification will be a truth and uh, our corrupted bodies and our bodies that are faulty and fall apart and fail us as a result of the sin curse will one day be changed into the likeness of the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will our corporal bodies be changed but all of our capabilities, our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, everything will be Brought, our, our salvation is brought full circle in glorification. And when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. And one of the, those lofty thoughts that I can ever begin to think of or try to perceive within my feeble mind this morning is that God will bring my salvation to a place one day where it, I will not be capable of sinning against Him. And that should be the desire of the Christian's heart that we would not sin against Him. And we should long for that deliverance from the remaining sin and the indwelling sin that holds us and binds us. Faith, it produces a radical change. And so I, I had heard one evangelist, and he, he made an excellent point when regarding the assurance of salvation. He said, it, it, it really is more of a, a simple evaluation uh, at least in the beginning, then people understand it's a simple series of questions: that Has has your relationship with sin changed? Is there a conviction for sin? Is there a longing after holiness and conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ? Has your relationship with the Word of God changed? Is there a desire to know and understand God's revealed Word to us, given by His Spirit for us? Is there a change of relationship with fellow believers? Because I do believe that there is a desire to unite oneself to a community of believers. At the very least to seek them out and to fellowship with them. But to be a part of a local church. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produces a radical change in someone. Lastly, uh, I wish to use uh, another of the old adages that, and this is our third distinction, that faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Let's uh, go back to the scripture that we've already read from the book of Ephesians, and I want to read another verse uh, following it, but Ephesians chapter number 2. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In West Virginia, I work as a uh, builder in a company, and we build uh, small-scale and large-scale metal buildings for specialized industries of all uh, different sorts. Uh, But we are kind of swamped with work right now. We've been working six tens, uh, and we've just been doing everything we can to keep our head above water. And we've been hiring folks and we've been using temp agencies and we've been bringing in contractors and uh, our, our workload is just massive right now and the company's doing great, but we need people to work. And uh, I know that one of the fellas uh, in the management was told regarding the new hires that they that we bring in, that if you bring them in, and you don't need to keep them for a few weeks, but if they, if they don't seem like they're going to turn out early on, just go ahead and Go ahead and let them go. We we need people who are going to be able to produce, and that's what they were told. And um, you know, when you when you engage in a contract with an employer to do a certain job or work, what is expected is the work, the labor, and I don't want to think of it in in such base, earthly terms when we turn our eyes to this truth in Ephesians chapter number 2. But I do want to use that to highlight this, that when Jesus saves a sinner, they are saved to service. And we know from what the Bible teaches us that we are build it up in habitation for the spirit that we are all part of this household of faith and that uh, we work together as the body of Christ to fulfill the needs of the church together we're his bride and that the ear cannot do what the mouth does and that the fingers cannot do what the nose does and that it takes everyone together It it takes, uh, you know, it's almost the same as a a strong pew and a weak pulpit as it would be in a strong pulpit and a weak pew. It's it's working together synergistically to strengthen one another. You know, in, in kinesiology, in the study of sports medicine, they teach you that muscle groups don't necessarily grow the best independently. So a guy. Uh, wants to get big and bust and he goes to the gym every day and he just gets on the bench and he just bench presses every single day and he's trying to get his arms real big they're not going to grow nearly as big as they would if he would exercise all the muscle groups of his body together because our body is designed that way it grows in strength as the groups work together and I do believe in a sense that there's a great truth regarding the body of Christ in that way that we're to strengthen things that remain, that we're to work together, that we're to uh, covenant together to accomplish the work of God in the earth that God has assigned and given to us the commission that he's given to us as a local church. And so, this saving faith is this faith that alone it saves, but saving faith is never alone, it's accompanied by good works. This sort of brings us back to Hebrews chapter number 11 where we've read this morning. It it gives us the list all through. It gives us Abel. It gives us Enoch. It gives us Noah. It gives us Abraham. It it gives us Jacob. It gives us Sarah. um, It it gives us all these lists and all these people and things that were done. And it's, it's a list of works but they're works done by faith. And it is the grace of God alone that enables us and fits us for the work of God. And it is a work that can only be done by faith. A man's intellectual prowess and a man's physical strength can only get him so far. There are limitations. There are, there are, there are loads that will break you. There are burdens that will break you that you cannot push past. But it is the grace of God that strengthens us in the inner man to spiritual deeds and works that He's given for us that are used to glorify Him. And one day, in the end, in ultimate consummation of all things, He'll receive the glory for all of them because it was nothing of our own doing. He's the one who is faithful. we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus created in Christ Jesus unto good works which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them it's a satanic lie that one would believe that they have been converted but that God has no no task for Him. No deed for Him. And it just, I feel one of the things that is missing in our day is the understanding that in the ordinary and mundane tasks of our everyday life, we can glorify God. You can glorify God in the things that you despise on this earth. I'm sure that there have been people in here that have cleaned out an oven before. That is just a nasty job of just you gotta spray that stuff on and let it soak and the grime and the grease and the burns and the this, and none of it smells good and it's just it's kind of it's kind of puzzling how all that food smells so good when you open that oven door. But then when you clean that oven, I was like, whoa, this is rough but you know there is a way that a man can set his mind to a task that he can glorify God in doing things even like that. Lord, I'm thankful that I have the ability to do this today. Lord, I'm thankful you've provided the means providentially that I can buy an oven cleaner and it makes it so much easier than it has to be. I'm thankful I have an oven to clean. And... Um, Really, and and I'm not trying to preach the power of positive thinking to you here this morning, but we're renewed in our mind. A renewed mind is a thankful mind. I really believe that thankfulness is the key to glorifying God in the ordinary things. You can always find something to give God thanks for in all things. Give thanks to Him in all things. This is the will of God. God saves us to good works. Another foolish uh, another foolish lie of the devil that you know, really in my moment just comes to my mind is this idea that when we look to one another and compare one another in the tasks that we've been given just as Paul warned the church we begin to compare we begin to contrast and we begin to to dwell on these things within ourselves and think to ourselves, well, what they what they have going on is so much more important than what I have going on. And that is such a foolish idea. I believe that only eternity and only heaven will reveal the unseen heroes of faith. And maybe their names aren't in Hebrews chapter number eleven, but the women of prayer and the laboring, the prayer, laboring co workers and, and things that have, God has used instrumentally in the earth to, to push forward the kingdom of God, to triumph. And so, this saving faith is how these things are done, this God given faith faith is a gift from God faith in Christ produces a radical change and faith alone saves but saving faith is never alone it is accompanied by these works and lastly uh, for just a few moments this morning I want want to communicate to you somewhat of a historical theology of uh, faith and an understanding of faith and this is really sort of Three components of faith uh, that theologically have been understood through the centuries of church history and down through the years. And that is, you know, when we think about faith, we're going to have questions. Because the Bible tells us that a man can believe in vain, and that a man can believe and go to hell. The Bible also tells us what must a man do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I believe that this helpful formula will um, systematically give us a better understanding of the concept of faith. And that is that is this. There's three components of faith. And, and I am uh, not a Latin scholar. And so, you will have to forgive me. Uh, I know Brother Renner was telling me last night that 70% of Italian uh, that he speaks is Latin. So, he would uh, perhaps offer some help to me in this hour, much needed help. But uh, there historically have been three components of faith: uh, notitia, assensus, and fiducia. And these three components sort of communicate three different aspects of what faith is. We're talking about faith in a general sense here. This first one, notitia, this is the knowledge of something. This is the knowledge of something. So let's go back to the illustration with uh, my little car out there. One of you could come to me after the Sunday school hour and say, Brother Mike, uh, you've got a bad leak underneath your car. And now I have the knowledge that when I go out there, it's probably not going to start. I have the knowledge of something. Though I haven't... uh, I've been made aware of it. And in a practical sense, we understand that there are many people who are aware of the saving grace of God. They are aware of the pressing matter that they need to repent of their sins or that they will perish eternally. They have a knowledge of these things. But the knowledge of these things alone does not make them saved. That is not the channel through which God delivers salvation, merely an intellectual knowledge of something. There's a man in just a few uh, short ways from here in Chapel Hill who was an evangelical for many years before apostatizing from the faith and now he is a... um, He engages his days in a higher criticism that seeks to tear down and destroy what the Word of God teaches about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if anyone has a knowledge of, and I believe primarily his focus is the Gospel of Mark in the Greek New Testament, but if anyone has a knowledge of that book front and back, it's probably him. But that does not make someone justified before God. And so this first component is an essential component. The knowledge of something. How shall they hear without a preacher? How will they know? How will they understand? How will they believe unless they have been communicated, unless they have had the the glorious, heavenly, divine truths of the gospel communicated to them? how How will they not understand? And so this noticia, this knowledge... Uh, is the first component. Secondly, there is this assentius. It's where we get our word ascent. To ascend to a certain truth. And this um, and I'm I'm defining this in the best way that I can understand it, but it, it seems to me that it is it's a it's almost a conviction that something is true. Someone has come out and told me you have a terrible leak outside of your car and I can doubt it, although I now have the knowledge of it. I can doubt it within my mind that when I drove it here it was fine. It wasn't making any noise. It hasn't, it hasn't ever had a leak. Until I go out there and I see it, and I get down underneath the, the um, car and see the leak, it's like, wow, you know, that's, that's true. This is staring me right in the face. I cannot deny this. It's right here. Um, now I am conceding to this fact That I have knowledge of. And in a sense, there are those who have taken heed, or those who have um, gone to seed on the leaven of the the Sadducees, and they doubt and they despise the miracles and the, the truth and the veracity of God's Word, although they have a knowledge of it. But there are also those who believe it. They accept the Word of God upon its claims that it uh, is indeed what it has said it is and that its claims are true. I believe it was Rolf Barnard we were speaking of last night as we ate supper who said that the greatest mission field in America is the local churches. I know that as a teenager, as a falsely converted deceived, self-serving sinner and rebel against God that I would have fought you over the doctrines of the Bible concerning Jesus Christ. I did not like when people took the Lord's name in vain and if you were to tell me that uh, there was no true historical figure, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that He did not really raise from the dead, I I would have not liked that because that's what I believed. I had a knowledge of it and I believed that it was true. I had that conviction that it was true. But I was lost. You say, how can a man in that condition remain lost if he believes these things? Because there is a third and crucial component and key element to true biblical saving faith. And that is fiducia. And that is what we will refer to as a personal trust. Trust. Personal trust. A casting of ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. The hymn writer put it better than I can. He said, Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I claim. Nothing. Naked. Naked without merit without honor without anything but sin Jonathan Edwards said you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary and so this this trust this not just having the knowledge of something not just a textbook intellectual understanding of the facts of something, and not just necessarily the assent to its truth and the, the understanding that it is, in fact, real and true, but a trust. A personal trust in what it is. And so... The call issued forth to all the world is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe the Word of God and the testimony of God's Son that it is true. You must hear it and know it. You must know the Gospel to believe it. And you must believe that it is true. But has the gospel taken root in your heart and in your life? Has it yielded forth fruit? Has it produced a radical change? Is there evidence of the new birth? You know, I've uh, done a little bit of digging on my family and their ancestry and things. And what I found that in rural West Virginia... uh, before the Civil War, people did not keep very good genealogical records. And many of the birth certificates that i found don't even give a day or a month. They just say he was born about 1860. <laughs> and I really think that that's just something he had to show up at a vital statistics office and tell them because they're wondering who you are and how you got here. There's no record of your birth, but obviously the evidence is that you're right here. They want evidence, don't they? They want evidence of these things. God's given us an entire book in the New Testament that says, I'd like to see some evidence. It's called the book of 1 John. But I hope and I pray that this simple study in saving faith is helpful to you. And I look forward to Uh, the worship hour to come let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for abundant mercy and grace toward undeserving sinners thank you for the word of God and your special supernatural revelation to man we do not need to wander and wander in darkness in chains in fetters Lord you have given us the truth that sets us free We pray that as we communicate the gospel from the word of God in this coming worship hour that you will bless it and that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will work within the hearts and minds of whom you are pleased to do. Lord, we pray ultimately and most importantly that you receive supreme honor and glory and praise unto your name. Please forgive us of all of our sin, our pride and our lust and our arrogance, Lord, and our deceitfulness, Lord, and our everything about us, Lord, that is just so so outside of what you are and what you desire of us, Lord. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.